another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lepka here with Professor Akil Amar. Bruised but not bowed. <laughs> How are you, Akil? Bruised. <laughs> and of course, we're coming to you now the day after the oral arguments in the Trump versus Anderson case. That is the case that considered the uh, disqualification of Donald Trump from the Colorado ballot. Uh, primary ballot because of 14th Amendment Section 3. And now, of course, there's been no ruling from the Supreme Court in the 24 hours since then, but uh, most of the world is treating it as if Trump will be uh, victorious on on this question. So, Akil, we weren't at the event, we weren't at the oral argument, but we did listen to it, um, although not together. So, um, now, you were with your law students, is that right? I was my intrepid team, and I'm so darn proud of them. And uh, was there anyone in the room that thought that things were going fairly well? No. And uh, so how would you characterize the argument as a whole? I'm disappointing. The silver lining, I suppose, is that the court may be unanimous or nearly so, so it won't look particularly partisan, so it will avoid some of the worst aspects of Bush versus Gore in that respect. Um, in that respect, maybe it's more like the Chiaflo case, where, as our audience knows, I think the Supreme Court unanimously got an electoral college issue wrong, and t- we talked about that, Andy, in our second podcast episode, which um, our first one we recorded on January 6th, 2021, and, and this was the second episode, actually. So, but at least it won't be probably when we are just predicting um, partisan. In our last episode, we had 20 questions, and that reflected the, our, our sense of the case that there were a lot of different things that the court was going to be discussing, a lot of different issues they were going to be considering. Um, and we're going to, in this episode, audience, play for you clips from the oral argument and have uh, Professor Marr weigh in on them. And um, so we're trying to group them sort of by argument, you know, by question. And now we're not going to do 20 of them, but I've got eight different t- topics um, that we're going to cover. Eight, and that'll probably take us a couple of episodes, Andy. So. Yeah, so I don't anticipate that we'll do the, the whole thing in this episode, but that's okay. Uh, you know, we're going to give you, you know, a pretty thorough look at the oral argument. Now, actually, it's it was a two-hour argument, and um, in preparing the clips, I really left out quite a lot. So e- even even though we're going to be, you know, going over this over a couple of of episodes, um, I think we're still nevertheless giving you what we consider the highlights. Um, one of the things, for example, is I don't think we're going to spend that much time on the question of, uh, you know, office and officer is the presidency and office is the president and officer. We'll do a little of that probably in the second episode. But um, part of the reason that we're not going to do this, I don't think that's going to be the focus of the court's opinion. Um, is that your sense as well, Akil? It is, but I do want to talk about it, and I especially want to talk about it because I got a lovely email from my colleague and friend, Sam Moyne, 
um, whom we've criticized on the podcast, but it's never been personal, and views we've criticized. And he actually suggested that we talk about Justice Jackson in particular and some of the things that she said, and that was um, central to some of the things she said, the officer stuff. So I do hope we get into it, and I was grateful to, that Sam reached out and, and made that very helpful suggestion, which was not remotely a gotcha, um, but he wants to hear our thoughts on that. And I frankly love the idea that even folks whose ideas we sometimes criticize are obviously listening to the podcast and, and giving us um, helpful suggestions. That's that's what you know scholars should do. So thank you, yeah, Sam. No, yeah, I'm, I'm I was really happy to hear about that, and we'll certainly oblige him. Um, okay. So let's get right into it. Uh, and first, I'm going to play you a very, very brief clip. And this is the clip from the opening of uh, the, uh, the argument for uh, Attorney Murray, who was the attorney for Colorado. And uh, just a couple of sentences from how he opened up his argument. Mr. Murray? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, we are here because for the first time since the War of 1812, our nation's capital came under violent assault. For the first time in history, the attack was incited by a sitting President of the United States to disrupt the peaceful transfer of presidential power. Okay, and then he goes on from there. So, of course, what was notable for the uh, the home team here was his comment about uh, 1812. Um, that now, of course, you could take it, you, you could take it uh, and say, well, yeah, technically, maybe this is a true statement, um, but something did happen between 1812 and 2021, January 6, 2021, which was the first insurrection of the 1860s, when we pointed out that the Capitol was at least certainly violently threatened. So the fact that he skipped over that was not, I felt, a good sign for the home team. Your reaction, Akil? Boy, as most <laughs> people would say, you know, not just oy vey, but oy gewalt. Um, but yes, he could have corrected that later on and talked about the first insurrection, but he didn't. He didn't really actually, frankly, show any understanding of the issues that we teed up in our brief. Maybe he read our brief, maybe not. I know that sounds very harsh, but if we lose this case uh, overwhelmingly, we have to ask why that's so. And it is the job of the oral advocate to make the best arguments, and I'm not sure he did. He again and again uh, missed the best arguments. Sometimes the best arguments required him to be much more assertive and aggressive in uh, articulating a line that's absolutely logical and defensible, correcting justices when they're plainly wrong, giving them clear, factual answers that actually support our position. So, yeah, it didn't start particularly well. And of course, that was after Attorney Mitchell, who was the attorney for, for Trump, had, had his argument and had his questioning. And by that time, frankly, it was already pretty clear that it was going to be an uphill battle. You know, it's interesting. I, I was texting with you and, and your, your law students during the argument. turns out that our friend Neil Cockyall had a, a running uh, tweet 
storm during the uh, or tweet, tweet Twitter feed, let's call it during the argument. I took a look at it today, and it, a lot of his thoughts paralleled what we were saying, which is so. And, and we're going to get to this now. During the uh, Mitchell's time, which again was first, um, he said, "Well, the justices are really." focusing on self-execution, and he should lead, lead with that in his argument, which was what I, what I was thinking as well. doesn't mean that either of us were right. And I, the, other, the other reason I bring this up is that, you know, I certainly don't blame this on Attorney Murray. I mean, I, th- I think that, uh, you, know, you know, he had a tough, a tough job, and we're disappointed that he didn't, you know, express certain arguments that we would have liked to have seen get, get a hearing um, but I'm not sure it would have mattered in the end, but we'll see. Anyway, so let's uh, let's get to this business about self-execution. So just to be clear, because uh, I don't want to have confused the office by playing the clip from Attorney Murray, the, here, here was the sequence of events. Um, Attorney Mitchell spoke very briefly. Then he was questioned by the justices for a while. Then uh, Attorney Murray spoke again briefly, and that's when he gave that that uh, clip on 1812, and then he was questioned for a while. And then some other things happened that we'll get into later. But um, in terms of Attorney Mitchell, he spoke very briefly. Most of the time that, I, that I, I'm calling Mitchell's time consisted of question and answer, with justices questioning him. And right away, the justices got into the question of self-execution, as you can hear with this clip from Clarence Thomas, who asked the first question. Mr. Mitchell, would you, uh, uh, you didn't uh, uh, spend much time uh, on your argument with respect to whether or not Section 3 is self-executing. So would you address that? And and, in doing that, uh, your argument is that it's not self-executing, but then in that case, what would the role of the state be? uh, uh, Or is it entirely up to Congress to implement uh, the disqualification uh, in Section 3. It is entirely up to Congress, Justice Thomas, and our argument goes beyond actually saying that Section 3 is non-self-executing. We need to say something more than that, because a non-self-executing treaty or a non-self-executing constitutional provision normally can still be enforced by a state if it chooses to enact legislation. The holding of Griffin's case goes beyond even that by saying that a state is not allowed to implement or enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment unless and until Congress enacts implementing legislation allowing it to do so. So under Griffin's case, which we believe is correctly decided, the Anderson litigants disagree with us on that point, but if this Court were to adhere to the holding of Griffin's case, there would not be any role for the states in enforcing Section 3 unless Congress were to enact a statute that gives them that authority. Counsel, um, uh, what if somebody came into a state Secretary of State's office and said, uh, um, I took the oath specified in Section 3. I participated in an insurrection, um, uh, and uh, I want to be on the ballot. Can the sec- does the Secretary of State have the authority in that situation to say, no, you're disqualified? No, the Secretary of State could not do that consistent with term limits, because even if the candidate is an admitted insurrectionist, Section 3 still allows the candidate to run for office and even win election to office and then see whether Congress lifts that disability after the election. This happened frequently in the wake of the 14th Amendment where Confederate insurrectionists were elected to Congress. And sometimes they obtained a waiver, sometimes they did not. And each House would determine for itself 
whether to seat that elected insurrectionist because each house is the sole judge of the qualifications of its members. So if a state banned even an admitted insurrectionist from the ballot, it would be adding to and altering the Constitution's qualifications for office because under Section 3, the candidate need only qualify during the time the candidate holds the office to which he's been elected. And under Your Honor's hypothetical, the Secretary of State would be demanding, essentially, that the candidate obtain a waiver from Congress earlier than the candidate needs to obtain that way. So a lot there, but uh, your comments, Akil? Jonathan Mitchell is very good, and he has an affirmative case, and he blended no fewer than four different things into that answer. These are his affirmative points, and it might seem really impressive, but if we slow down the tape, none of it makes any sense. They don't fit together. Now let's just go through them. You know, carefully, let's, let's do that, because you can't do that at oral argument, quite. But if anyone out there is listening, any clerk, any justice, let's go through it. So first, he appeals to Griffin's case, which is an originalist move based on early implementation of the 14th Amendment, said, actually, no, you can't do anything unless Congress has acted. Congress has to pass the law. Well, Maybe that's what Griffin's case said, but that's not what the Grant administration did. The Grant administration actually enforced Section 3 without a congressional statute, and Murray on the other side never even mentions that point, although it's front and center in our brief. And in fact, Griffin's case misstates the facts even about Virginia and whether it's been applied self-executingly. And it's not just Virginia, which is... um, controlled by the Grant administration is even in places like Georgia, which actually have a state government up and running, and, and they enforced it without a congressional statute involving, I think, a fellow named Christie and Wimpy. Okay, so there's that. Then he has a second move, does my friend Jonathan Mitchell, and he is my friend, and he basically says, well, you can't do that because you'd be adding to a qualification and you can't do that under term limits, a case called term limits versus Thornton. Now, that's not an originalist point at all. That's a point about the John Paul Stevens uh, Supreme Court opinion from the late 20th century, early 21st century. Okay, but here's the point of that. Okay, you might say, well, fine, but why don't they fit together um, hand in glove? Because that was about congressional elections and only congressional elections. It had nothing to say, for example, about elections for state dog catcher or mayor or state representative or governor. And the 14th Amendment, Section 3, applies to all of those things. And of course, states have control over that. And what Chief Justice Roberts actually asked, but no one called him on it. You see, he just said ballot. He didn't say for what position. You might say, oh, well, he's talking about federal positions. Oh, But term limits, you see, is only about congressional elections, okay? It's not about presidential elections, because presidential elections, in fact, are more like state office elections, because, in fact, states don't have to have them at all. 50-state solution, that's what the electoral colleges, states can decide exactly how they want to structure presidential elections. They have virtually the same kind of plenary control over presidential elections that they do over state elections for dog catcher. And if you listen carefully to that clip, audience members, if you want to go back, John Roberts, who asked a good, hard question, asked about 
getting on the ballot generally. Now Jonathan Mitchell made a third point because he has these memes and he's blended them together. And if you and and if you don't know all these issues backwards and forwards and sideways, and Jonathan Murray, I don't think does, and I don't think, frankly, the justices do. You will miss all of this. This is sleight of hand. So he makes a third point, and he and he brings in the amnesty idea. Well, actually, you know, you could amnesty all these folks. Well, that's equally true, you see, of state offices, and yet no one thinks that or at least he's got to deal with the fact that the Grant administration and in Virginia and Chris and, and the state governor in Georgia did disqualify folks who you know could have been amnestied but weren't. Then he makes a fourth point that he brings in, which is there's this distinction between holding office and running for office. And we talk about that in our brief as well, and how that really isn't a, a, a useful or, or important distinction. And the Grant administration, even if it doesn't always keep someone off the ballot, doesn't let them hold it for a day, you know, pr- prevents them from doing that. But you see how he's blended all these things together. It's a kind of goulash or stew. And if, and if you're not careful, and, and he's mixing originalist claims, which fail as originalist claims, and precedent claims like the term limits case, which has nothing to do with Article 2 and everything to do with Article 1, congressional elections, which have to be held every two years for the House and under the 17th Amendment and the original Constitution every six years for the Senate, but under the 17th Amendment direct popular election, and are subject to congressional statutes regulating them. And we talked about all of that on Moore versus Harper, but Article 1 is totally different from Article 2, an electoral college system that give, give states very broad authority. But if you, if you listen carefully, Chief Justice Roberts asked just about being on the ballot. But John, Jonathan Mitchell, who, again, he's my friend. I really respect him. He's really good at what he does. But actually, he's trying to win a case, and he's not actually a systematic constitutional thinker that's just trying to make everything truly fit together. He's, he's trying to win a case, and oh, he's good. And you have to hold your wallet, because otherwise you will get your pocket picked. Okay, well, you know, you, you threw a lot at, at us there. and I, Let's just back up a little bit on, on some of the things that you said. So you said, okay, presidential, when we were talking about the term limits case, that that's about congressional elections. Yes. Okay. So, and the implication in what you're saying is that that doesn't that means that it may not be about presidential elections. And in fact, the okay, best because this case is about a presidential election, at least, right. You know, in part. And um, in fact, Andy, the it's not a great Stevens opinion, truth be told, and it gets the clearly right result. And here's why, because. Arkansas, the voters of Arkansas basically said, if you've been in office a certain amount of time, I can't remember if it was 12 or 18 years, you're ineligible. Stevens says, well, uh, states can't add new eligibility criteria for for Congress, for House and, and, and Senate. But let's just take House. Okay. Now, he in turn is building on a case that, that I actually started to teach um, on Wednesday and will be teaching again on Monday. Um, and Tuesday, in fact, in both at both Yale and Columbia. I've taught it every year since I, st- I started teaching. 
It's a case called Powell versus McCormick. And what it says is each house, when purporting to judge the qualifications of its members, can't add to the qualifications of its members. So, and it actually mentions in a footnote, 14th Amendment Section 3 as one of the qualifications. In fact, of course that makes deep structural sense. This is a great Earl Warren opinion, quite originalist, because if the House could do that, at a certain point it could say, well, you know, here's a qualification to be a, a member of, if it could add qualifications, to be a member of the House of Representatives, to already be a member of the House of Representatives, you know, to be an incumbent, you know, or if they were controlled by Democrats, oh, you have to be a Democrat. If they were controlled by lawyers, oh, you have to be a lawyer. And structurally, if you could exclude people for any and all, uh, or uh, all reasons, the expulsion clause would end up being superfluous and irrelevant because that requires two-thirds, okay? So if, if you think George Santos shouldn't be seated, but he is old enough and he did win the election and he is a citizen and, and he meets the standing criteria, you've got to have two-thirds. And if you could simply exclude him at the door... But, uh, by just adding a new qualification, that two-thirds protection, you know, would be a Maginot line. So Powell makes total sense. So you only now, need a majority in order to add, to, in order to... To exclude. Uh, to, to exclude, as but opposed there, to expel. You know, a mere majority, but it's mm -hmm. only for certain reasons. You didn't win the election, mm -hmm. and you don't meet the standing qualifications in the pre-existing law. So term limits goes two steps beyond that, it's about not Congress, but a state. And the voters of a state will, and it says, well, they can't add new qualifications as well. And one obvious question for is, Congress. for Congress, can they vote, can the voters of a state vote against someone whom they otherwise like just because he's been there too long? And the answer is, of course they can. They can vote against him for any reason whatsoever. And then the question is, well, if they can do that, why can't they do that not every time, every election, every two years, every district, but just one time in a statewide referendum? And the answer to the, see, that question, see, because when if each house does it, it's, it's really defying the will of the voters in that district, you see. But if the voters are doing it themselves, totally structurally different. Now... John Paul Stevens wasn't, I, again, I don't think it's a great opinion, but it gets the right result. Here's the answer to that. Because Congress has passed a statute regulating congressional elections. And here I'm building on, I, I wrote about this long ago. It's in my casebook. The best article on this was written by my student, Rick Hills, Roderick M. Hills, Jr. I, I thought about all these issues for a long time and I'm being straight. Jonathan Mitchell hasn't, and the justices haven't. They, they just, they, you know, this is not what they do day in and day out, which is why we have to slow the tape down. Okay, so term limits, the decision, Thornton, is rightly decided because Congress passed a statute, and the statute says you, the people, have to vote by House district, not statewide. Now, this referendum might have passed, but maybe it didn't have a majority in each House district. And even if it did, once it's on the books, it can't be repealed without another referendum. And even if in that referendum, a majority in one district votes to repeal, they don't have that power on their own. So that Arkansas referendum was, in fact, 
preempted by, in violation of, a congressional statute about the time, place, and manner, by House District, of House elections. Okay, so, so it's a rightly decided case, but boy, it has nothing to do with state elections for dog catcher or mayor or governor or state judge, nor does it have anything whatsoever to do with this case where there's near plenary power of state legislatures. If state legislatures themselves could vote, this is what we say in our brief, Andy, could themselves constitutionally say, we're not going to give it to the voters. We're going to decide ourselves. And because we think he's an insurrectionist, we're not going to vote for him. And the, or they could even say, we ask our other officials in the state to determine whether he's an insurrectionist. And if they determine he's an insurrectionist, we vote against him. These are all issues of state constitutional law, you see. Um, back to Moore versus Harper, as ultimately decided by the state Supreme Court. And here the state Supreme Court, you see, weighed in in a, in a, in a certain way. So none of that has anything to do with the Thornton term limits case. And then, as I said, he added this, well, you can't do this because you could maybe you're going to be amnesty later on, you know. Well, maybe tomorrow, you know, my long-lost uncle is going to give me a billion dollars, but, but who knows? And in fact, there have been lots of cases where people are, for example, excluded from the ballot because they're not natural-born citizens. That's happening right now in many states. And Neil Gorsuch, 12 years ago or um, in Colorado, said in Colorado that, of course, Colorado is allowed by the U.S. Constitution to exclude someone from a presidential primary ballot because they're not natural born. And you can say, well, but if you're not natural born, that can't change. Of course it can. Constitution could be amended in between, just like, you know, the amnesty could happen. No difference between those two future developments pivoting on, on special votes, actually two-thirds House, two-thirds Senate, rather similar, in fact, structurally. Of course, an amendment means three-quarters of the states. And if you say you can't do any of these things until someone is actually ready to hold, uh, about to hold office, Wow, that's a recipe for structural chaos on January 20th or what have you. And we said all of those things um, in our brief. Before we leave the term limits case, um, you know, you, 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 that was a great explanation of the case and why it makes sense regarding congressional elections. And then you said, well, states get to make their own rules regarding the presidential election. But it's not just that they get to make their own rules. It's also that they don't have the same structure that they do for congressional elections. It's a statewide election. So all, so many of the, at least it, it's likely to be a statewide election. There are, they can structure it in such a way like in, uh, in Nebraska and in Maine, they, they do it so that it's congruent with the congressional district. So that, that might be a little bit different, but in general. Andy, stop um, on just that. Stop on this. Yes. You just made a really important point that I wish my friend Elena Kagan had really taken into account. Even today, states do it differently. There's not one template that all the states have to follow. 48 states today have winner-take-all. Two states, Nebraska and Maine, have winner-take-most. At the founding, state legislatures themselves picked electors in some states and let the voters pick in, in others. 
Lincoln wasn't on the ballot in some states and was on the ballot in others, and that's true in our lifetime with Ralph Nader and multiple times and Gary Johnson. So the point is we don't have a national presidential system, and we actually have very little congressional oversight because the Constitution doesn't provide in Article 2 the same Congress can pass time, place, and manner rules um, that we have for Article 1. Right, and that's Moore versus Harper also, where we, where your brother Vic brought that uh, that point to the to the court's attention. He did. Uh, Vic mm-hmm. sees a lot of stuff. Now we're starting to get into you know questions of self execution, and you you talked about how um, obviously they're relying here on Griffin's case to, already, you know, to, to to some extent. Now you said, well, of, of course states can disqualify people from state offices under the 14th Amendment, Section 3. But can they? I mean, does Griffin's case say that a congressional statute is needed for anyone to implement the 14th Amendment, Section 3 in well, any if, way? Well, you know, when you reach a fork in the road, says Yogi Berra, take it. Either way, it's a problem. If it does, oh my God, that's completely inconsistent with what states are actually doing for state offices in Virginia and Georgia and not. If it's different, now you got to explain why this same provision of 14th Amendment Section 3, you know, has completely different enforcement mechanisms for the state election part of the ballot and the federal election part of the ballot. So that's going to be a tricky thing also to deal with. And the question that John Roberts asked him was the ballot. Now, why would someone believe that it was self-executing? In other words, what's the basis? I mean, I'm not asking you to revisit Griffin's case in its minutia, but but what is the the reasoning for saying that? I mean, just okay. Chase said that it was, but we still I still don't have any sense of why anyone would say that it is, given the points that we've made uh, and many others have made about the Fourteenth Amendment that it, that otherwise. It is it's self-executing. All the other parts of the Fourteenth Amendment are, um, at least to the extent that they don't um, require Congress to appropriate money, you know, or or you know do other things that the Constitution says requires a statute. So why is it that we would believe that it was self-executing, um, other than that Chase says it is? You could imagine that for structural reasons. Once someone is in office, there's some real complexities about saying, and let's imagine that they actually, in effect, disqualify themselves while in office, and then, you know, at what point do they cease to be an officer or something? And you could think that because there are some of these real complexities, for that, we really need a kind of congressional statute, necessary and proper for sort of fleshing out proper procedures, but none of that would remotely, I think, argue that you need a congressional statute in the heartland of state authority, which is Article 2, voting for presidential lectures and, every, and all the steps leading up to that. That's the, that. They're not yet in office at all. That's the heartland of state laws, state constitutions, state courts, and of course, and of course, the legislature, as we talked about in Moore versus Harper, could be all sorts of things. It could involve a gubernatorial veto. It could be a referendum process. Different states, Elena, are going to do 
things different ways. And by Elena, of course, I mean my dear friend, Justice Kagan, who frankly, we're going to hear her voice today and, and next week, really disappointed me. Now, of course, Congress in drafting and voting to ratify it, or, I'm sorry, voting to adopt the 14th Amendment, um, including Section 3, would, would, you know, could have weighed in on this question of self-execution. So was there anything in the debates that addressed it? Yeah, we, we say in our briefs that we've got folks who say the moment section, the moment section three and the rest of the 14th Amendment kicks in, the moment it will have immediate effect. And in fact, that creates some complications if people are already in office. And there were excellent questions on that, you know, that moment word is powerful, arguably too powerful when it comes to someone who's already in office. And we'll talk about that. There were questions about the so-called de facto officer doctrine and all the rest. We've already appealed to the early implementation in which people didn't wait for congressional statutes to implement the thing in places like Virginia and Georgia with President Ulysses S. Grant's blessing. Andy, we got a great email from one of our audience saying, gee, they really were, the Reconstruction Congress, worried about someone like Jeff Davis running for president or, you know, even people running for any of the other offices for pres- and, and other positions, presidential electors, house, house members, senators, you know, state offices as well. Gee, the sitting president at the time the 14th Amendment is being ratified, proposed and ratified is Andrew J- Johnson. If you're going to need congressional implementing legislation, he's going to veto it. So why would you be setting yourself up for you know requ- needing yet another two thirds and two th- uh, two thirds just to get the thing being operational, being implemented before the next election, which they very much are worried about, which is November 1868. And Andy, you might remember the name of this audience member. And when you and I both read it, you know, we said, "Damn." Wish we had thought of that because that's that's a really great argument. This is the problem with the hurry up offense unless the justices actually really know tons of stuff. I know a fair amount about this, and I hadn't thought of that until this person brought it to my attention. And now I think, wow, that's a really good point. So truthfully, in theory, there is still time, clerks and justices. The opinion hasn't come out yet. I hope someone out there is listening because some of the things that were said are not correct. And if you say stupid things in your opinion, it's not as if America is going to stop kind of commenting on it and pointing out these mistakes, scholars and the American citizenry more generally. So it behooves you. I know it's important to get it out quickly, but ideally it's important to get it right. And frankly, Andy, what really disappointed me is I saw very little evidence in oral argument that any of the justices had really engaged any of the amicus briefs by all sorts of experts on Colorado's side. People like Drew Gilpin Faust, president, former president of Harvard University, joined by Bancroft and Pulitzer Prize winners like David Blight and John Witt, um, the great Jill Lepore. There were many other um, historians' briefs, Eric Foner and others, you know, weighing in uh, in historical scholarship. Our brief, of course. So it's disappointing when 
this, and this is the problem with originalism. And we tried to be candid about that in our last episode, because this is complex stuff. I know much more about section three than I did a few years ago. And a few years ago, I knew more about section three than almost anyone I know. Just to follow up on that point about Andrew Johnson, you know, in order to pass the uh, amendment, they needed a two-thirds majority so in each house. So presumably, they had a veto-proof majority for uh, implementing legislation if they felt it was necessary. So given that they were worried about the upcoming election, and given that Andrew Johnson you know, was, was hostile to, to most of these efforts, our listener points out that, it was, that if they really felt that, that implementing legislation was necessary, that they would have passed it before the end of the term because they would have been able to override. I mean, you don't know if you're going to get you know, the two-thirds majority for the legislation, but it seems reasonable. You're certainly going to have a better chance than you would you know, after the election if you don't think the election is going that well. So we're making two points, Andy. One is being proposed in June 1866. You know, would you have required self-execution? If so, then, because it's not going to be ratified until after the next election, and you don't know if you're going to have two-thirds in that election. So, you know, would you have really drafted something that's going to require you to win that next election overwhelmingly? Mm -hmm. That's the first point, but when you're drafting it, and the second point is, once it's ratified, if you actually thought it needed a statute, since you happen to have at that moment two-thirds, it's now June, July, 1868, the election's just a few months away. If you thought you needed one, why wouldn't you have done it? Because you actually do have two-thirds at that point still. So both great points. We have to, Andy, give a shout-out by name to this audience member. Yeah, so here's a big shout-out to Harvey Bach for those interesting questions. Our answer is, wish we had thought of it. Yes. <laughs> Good points. Akil, I just want to correct the record here. Both you and I have made the same mistake over the last few minutes. We got a little bit enthusiastic, and when we were talking about self-executing, we started saying that we believe that, uh, or, or saying things that implied that we believe that Section 3 is not self-executing. In fact, we believe that it is self-executing. And Attorney Mitchell was saying that he believes that it is not self-executing. So just to be clear on that. Um, and then as long as we're taking a little break for a correction, let me also provide our listeners who are interested in obtaining continuing legal education credit from listening to our podcast with the code for this week's episode. So in order to obtain the credit, you go to podcast.njsba.com, fill out the form, it will ask you for a code. The code for this week's episode is ENTERPRISE, E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E, -E. so ENTERPRISE as in free enterprise, um, and you enter that, and voila, you will have your CLE credit if you are in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, or New York, and for other states, check with your state bar association for the uh, taking advantage of the reciprocity that most states enjoy with the New Jersey State Bar Association. And thank you to them for partnering with us on this effort. You know, we're spending a lot of time at the beginning here on self-execution, largely because the court spent a lot of time on it. So let's, let's listen to some more clips here. Justice Sotomayor weighed in on this um, pretty soon after the, this question, these questions that we just heard. 
I understand what you're relying on, Griffith. Let's just be very clear. Right. Griffith was not a presidential Supreme Court decision. That's correct. All right? It was a circuit court decision by a justice who, when he becomes a justice, writes in the Davies case, um, uh, he assumed that Jefferson Davies would be ineligible to hold any office, particularly the presidency, and treated, and this is his words, Mm -hmm. Section 3 as executing itself, needing no legislation on the part of Congress to give it effect. So you're relying on a non-presidential case by a justice who later takes back what he said. But the key point with Griffin's case and why it's an important precedent, despite everything Your Honor said, it is not a precedent of this court, but Griffin's case provided the backdrop against which Congress legislated the Enforcement Act of 1870 when it first provided an enforcement mechanism for Section 3. Yeah, and it did away with it later. It did away with it later. But but, but that has nothing to say with respect to what Section 3 means. Can we get to the issue, which is, I think, one that I go back to that I started with, um, and and very briefly, what sense does it say that states— can't enforce Section 3 against their own officials. Because I mean, I, I think log- logically those are two separate issues in my mind. Can states enforce the insurrection clause against their own office holders, or can they enforce it against uh, federal officials, or can they enforce it against the president? Those are all three different questions in my mind. And the the answer to all three of those questions turns on whether this court agrees with the holding of Griffin's case. If Griffin's case is the proper enunciation of the law, then a state cannot do any of the things Your Honor suggested unless Congress gives it authority to do so. So a non-presidential decision that relies on policy doesn't look at the language, doesn't look at the history, doesn't analyze anything than the disruption that such a suit would bring, you want us to credit as presidential. Because Congress relied on Griffin's case when it enacted the Enforcement Act of 1870 and established... So, Mr. Mitchell, if I may interrupt, but just to clarify, I mean, this sounds like your reply brief, where it sounds like you're not making a constitutional argument. You're really making a statutory preemption argument. And is is that what you're doing here? You're not saying that the Constitution gives you this rule. It's the kind of combination of Griffin's case plus the way Congress acted after Griffin's case yes. that gives you the rule. Okay. Your comments there, Akil. Justice Kagan sounds like she's actually trying to help this guy out. So, you know, that was not great. Justice Sotomayor was extremely sharp and analytic, making just the distinction, you know, that I earlier made. He says that Griffin's case is the backdrop of this congressional statute. But given that, you know, frankly, he's um, full of beans on many of the other historical claims he, he's made, I, I would be careful about crediting that. I, I don't know that he's wrong, but, I, you know, he's been wrong on so many other things. I don't know all of that for a fact, but here's what I can tell you, that the backdrop of this congressional statute is also what the Grant administration did in Georgia, in Virginia and elsewhere. 
So I don't know, you know, why this one case is the backdrop rather than all sorts of other things are the backdrop. And it's a statute that doesn't say states can't do this without the statute. And ordinarily, you know, we often say, gee, states can go do things above and beyond what Congress has done. That's often the case. There's not a thing called field preemption. And in any event, that congressional statute is no longer on the books. And so if that congressional statute actually is what ousts state self-execution authority, why doesn't the repeal of that statute later bring all of that back to life? So, wow, I've got question after question after question. And the fundamental, you know, the first principle, I, I teach this stuff every year, FEDGER, which is about the relation between state and federal law, the relation between state and federal courts, and the general presuppositions are, you know, state law is the background. It fills in all sorts of, of gaps everywhere in our legal system. And state courts, you know, are courts of, of general jurisdiction with all sorts of authority. Congressional action is narrow, is in certain specified domains. And uh, the backstop is the state system. The other thing is that we talk about the enacting legislation. Now, I'm not an expert, but the enacting legislation is sections 14 and 15 of the Ku Klux Klan Act. Okay, it's just two paragraphs. Now, section 15, the second paragraph, what it does is it creates a, a crime. It says that if you, if you accept or hold an office under the United States when you're in violation of section 3, then you shall be deemed guilty of a misdemeanor. And upon conviction, you'll be imprisoned for not more than one year or fined or both. So, of course, you need legislation for that that's creating a crime. That a federal crime. To, a federal, a federal crime. crime. Yeah. Federal crime. That yeah. has nothing to do with Griffin's case. Nothing. Am I right? Seems to me. Okay. What Section 14 says, it seems to me, is it doesn't say anything about st state legislatures or state courts or anything about that in terms of whether that they can enforce Section 3 or anything like that. What it does say is it shall be the duty of the district attorney of the United States for the district in which such person shall hold office to proceed against such person by writ of quo warranto, blah, 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 blah. And again, this is a, a you know, in federal jurisdiction there. Does that preempt state jurisdiction? It might for the reason that there is a backdrop principle that sometimes constrains state court injunctive rulings, not damages, but mandamus and injunctions against sitting federal office holders, especially if you're trying to oust someone from federal office. This is connected to federal removal statutes and, and other things. But again, none of that would be remotely relevant in a ballot access situation where the person doesn't even have office yet. And by the way, but there are that, some special. I'm being. I'm trying to be as candid as I can and acknowledge things on the other side. But there's a case. It's called McClung versus Silliman. It arguably is connected to a case, and and I've written about McClung versus Silliman. And I'm one of I think three people that I know of that has written extensively about McClung versus Silliman. There's my friend Jim Fander, and I'm not even sure who else has written in great detail. Let's say I wrote about that in 1987, I believe, in a piece in 
in a few footnotes in a piece on Marbury versus Madison, 1989, excuse me, all about mandamus jurisdiction because Marbury is a mandamus case. There are some special rules about state courts mandamusing federal officers, issuing sort of coercive orders to them to do X, to do Y. And for the same reason you might think, gee, a state court purporting to oust an existing, a sitting federal officer, that may raise some particular complexities. But none of that would be relevant to the situation at hand when we're talking about ballot access rules, especially for state elections and presidential elections. And you heard Jonathan Mitchell take the bait when Justice Sotomayor asked him. He says, they can't do anything even for state elections. Wow. That's a huge intrusion into the ability of state law and state courts to regulate their own elections. And then he has to say the same thing because it's what the case is all about, presidential elections. Wow, that's a huge intrusion on the traditional powers of states to structure presidential elections. And my friend, Elena Kagan, as you're going to hear later on in these episodes, Andy, was very bad on that because she kept treating this as if it's a kind of undifferentiated national election, and the attorney for Colorado did not disabuse her of that emphatically, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, at a certain point, you have to understand that to actually let her say that is to concede the case, because you've just conceded the basic logic of your position. And if our audience members want to read our brief, what we say is, the greater power of a state to not even hold a presidential election, a state um, governmental system, subsumes the lesser power to structure it in all sorts of ways, 50-state solution style, subject to, we hasten to concede, overarching constitutional principles that constrain all state action, not just in presidential elections, such as... First Amendment, race equality, sex equality. So if you said, well, you know, since we have the greater power not to have an election at all, we hold as a matter of law that we can't, you know, Catholics can't be elected. That raises some real First Amendment questions. Or women can't be elected, or blacks can't be elected. Justice Kavanaugh, at a certain point, actually says something about greater power, lesser power. He says, well, the greater power doesn't always include lesser. That's true, Justice Kavanaugh, but you need to tell me why very concretely it doesn't, because as a general proposition in, in logic and elsewhere, it, it generally does, and you're going to have to show me something really particular, why that greater power doesn't include the lesser. Otherwise, you're not really being logical and persuasive. So, so the burden now, my friend, is on you to show me why, and I didn't hear anything like that from Justice Kavanaugh or from Justice Kagan. What they're starting to get, get at here, um, and you alluded to it in some of your comments there, Akil, is this notion that Griffin's case, rightly or right or wrong, plus congressional enacting statute, equals some kind of liquidation of the 14th Amendment, such that, that we understand it in, simply in the basis of that. Now, you've argued... That, well, what about early implementation outside of Griffith's case, like, you know, Grant and et cetera? What about legislative intent of the, of the 14th Amendment? You know, what about these things? Also, suppose that you're a member of Congress 
and Griffith's case comes around, and you think this is a ridiculous decision, but just in case, why don't we pass this law just so we don't have to worry about it? All, that, all sorts of that, things. Would that would that go against such a theory that, that right. uh, and, and and remember Griffin's case was about someone who was already holding office, and there are these complexities. Case, by the way. I keep saying Griffith, and so did so does the transcript, by the way. Um, but <laughs> um, but so it's Griffin's case. So sorry right. for any confusion there. But Griffin's case. Um, was all about someone who already had been in office. And that raises all sorts of complexities when you realize, oh, they shouldn't be in office at all, but they've done all these things. And um, we may hear later on in the clips, Andy, remember audience, I'm, I'm hearing these for the first time myself, although I did listen to the oral argument. We may hear discussion of the de facto officer doctrine and, and what mm-hmm. that's in part about is once you're in office, Oh, there's some particular complexities. Maybe state courts can't oust you under McClung versus Silliman. There's the de facto officer doctrine. Who's to decide with your inferiors? At what point, you know, your your orders are no longer valid. But that cuts, my friend Jonathan Mitchell, exactly against your you know too clever by half thought that we can only enforce these things you know once you're you're in office you know the time to enforce these things is to prevent you from holding the office in the first place from keeping that that's the easier and more functional enforcement mechanism that you're trying to say you can't do because of some bs interpretation of the thornton case the term term limits case which doesn't apply to repeat remotely to state officers or the presidency. At most, it applies to senators and representatives. doesn't apply to presidential electors. So, so he's saying term limits. Okay, you've dealt with that. And then he's saying... Well, or, or Chief Justice Roberts would remind us, don't call it term limits because right, um, Thornton, I think yeah. it's th- yeah. the Thornton but, case. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so, so you're saying that, okay, we've dealt with that. And then he's also saying, well, the text of the 14th Amendment talks about hold. But you, but so to, let me see if I understand it correctly, that you're saying that even, even if that's the case, there's nothing wrong with states adopting a standard that says that we just don't want our voters to be voting for people that might be disqualified the day that they are, you know, they take an oath or something, yeah. the day they're inaugurated. And therefore, and, we're and, not going to allow them to put them on the ballot. And the person who said that, about as clearly as it's possible to say it, was then Judge Neil Gorsuch. Let me just read that sentence, and it's out of Colorado, okay? Wow, it seems so on point. And and Murray, who clerked for Justice Gorsuch, never even quoted that, amazingly. So let's just read that sentence again. Roll the tape here, but we're just slowing it down. Quote, A state's legitimate interest in protecting the integrity and practical functioning of the political process permits it to exclude from the ballot candidates who are constitutionally prohibited from assuming office. And that was in a case from Colorado involving a presidential primary, someone who was not eligible under the Constitution to hold the office of president. Mm-hmm. Wow. And actually, if we look at, I'm going to look at that one more time here, assuming office, he even says. So, because he's going to later start playing some linguistic games with office and officer. And now there's a lot more discussion 
of this. I'm going to play a few clips here, and you'll see that they're sort of developing this argument as they go along. But again, the argument, it doesn't quite presume that Griffin's case is correct, but it almost does. All of those were made with Griffin's case as the backdrop. The under- uh, please. please. Well, the understanding was that these congressionally established remedies would be exclusive of state court remedies. So there's not an express statement of preemption in these statutes, but there didn't need to be because Griffin's case provided the backdrop. And if I could just understand the argument a little bit better, suppose that we took all of that away. You know, su- suppose there were no Griffin's case and there were no subsequent congressional enactment. What do you then think the rule would be? So in just as a matter of first principles without Griffin's case, it's a much harder argument for us to make because normally, I mean, every other provision of the 14th Amendment has been treated as self-executing. What we would argue in this hypothetical that Your Honor has suggested is that there are practical considerations unique to Section 3 that counsel in favor of a rule similar to what Chief Justice Chase spelled out in Griffin's case. And it goes to, I think, the policy concerns he talks about where this was a case, Griffin's case involved a convicted criminal who was seeking a writ of habeas corpus on the ground that the judge who tried his case was an insurrectionist disqualified under Section 3. And Chief Justice Chase realizes that if he enforces Section 3 in this situation, it would nullify every official act taken, not only by this particular judge, but by anyone who is an insurrectionist or arguably an insurrectionist under Section 3. Well, and that was why just- do you need those consequential concerns, though? I mean, it kind of seems to me that what Justice Kagan is getting at is why don't you have an argument that the Constitution of its own force, that Section 3 of its own force, preempts the state's ability, not uh, not necessarily, I think, not to enforce Section 3 against its own officers, but against federal officers, like in a Tarbell's case kind of way. So there could also be an argument that's more limited. You're suggesting there may be a barrier under the Constitution to a state legislating an enforcement <coughs> mechanism for Section 3 specific to federal officers. We could rely on precedents such as McClung that says that state courts lack the authority to issue mandamus relief against federal officials. Well, why aren't that you making those here. arguments? Because that doesn't get us. That, Griffin's that case only gets goes, you out of state court. It doesn't get you out of federal right. court. I like his candor. He has a certain rapport with all the justices. He's admitting certain you know, weaknesses. But he's not being nailed to the wall. Okay, Because none of the things that he said apply when you're talking about ballots. They're talking about someone who's already holding office and all the chaos that ensues when you try to enforce these things once they're already in office. Don't you see that completely undercuts his point, oh, we have to wait until they hold office. So that's one thing. And here's the second thing. Okay, I, I apologize to the audience, but I got tenure on the basis of an article on Tarbell's case. It's one of the... 70 most cited articles of all time by scholars. It's been cited, I think, either seven or eight times by the United States Supreme Court. It's called Of Sovereignty and Federalism. And she's invoking it, and it's connected. That's um, Amy Coney Barrett. And she's connecting it to McClung versus Silliman. Those are all cases, Andy, about state courts making rulings against sitting federal officers. Tarbell's case was actually state judges telling the military what to do. Okay, and none of that is applicable here. And then she cuts him off. He says it doesn't help us because she said, "Oh yeah, because that's just about state versus federal court," and he, and he takes that as a lifeline. But I thought maybe he was about to say it doesn't help us because we're not dealing with a sitting officer here. That's actually why it doesn't help us at all. And she herself said, "Did Amy Coney Barrett that she doesn't buy the thought 
that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment preempts state enforcement when it comes to state officials. So now, actually, this thing means one thing for state officials and a different thing for federal officials. And I'm saying, which federal officials? Okay, because I understand maybe you've got an argument that's not a good one, perhaps, about House and Senate because of the Thornton case or something like that, which went was on a different basis, you know. But is that about presidential electors? Is that about the presidency itself? So I am admitting that when it comes to sitting officers, there are going to be functional and practical considerations that sitting officers, whether state or federal, that are maybe are going to require a sort of a different and more nuanced application of things. Okay, because you already have someone in place and it's hard to sort of undo actions of an, an officer once they're already in place. Whether a state judge, which was Griffin's case, or a federal judge or the U.S. president or a cabinet official. So there are these complexities when it comes to a sitting officer, but that undercuts his whole claim, oh, you can't enforce it you know, before that point. It's frustrating to me to sit on the sidelines and watch all of this and, and know that Murray, now with the benefit of hindsight, you know, that he didn't make any of these points because, oh, just like put me in, coach, because I've actually thought about McClung versus Sullivan and Tarbell's case and the term limits versus Thornton case and, and what it's really about. It's central in my case book, which based on Powell versus McCormick, which I teach every year, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know who else drew a distinction between people in office and people not yet in office was Chief Justice Chase himself in Griffin's case. Now, he, he was drawing another distinction which as well, which is people that were in office before the promulgation of the amendment, which, of course, was the situation with Judge that ruled against Griffin um, in that case. But here's a quote from him. You can see that he's... He himself recognizes that there are a lot of these distinctions. He says, it results from this examination that persons in office by appointment or election before the promulgation of the 14th Amendment are not removed therefrom by the direct and immediate effect of the prohibition to hold office contained in the third, but that legislation by Congress is necessary to give effect to the prohibition by providing for such removal. So well, that's... Brilliant, Andy. And, and honestly, the audience needs to know, you know, I, I haven't read Griffin's case with any care because I actually don't think it should pivot on that. I, I, if I'm going to pay attention to anything, I'm going to pay more attention to Grant because he was for the, the, 13th, the 14th Amendment in Section 3 and Chase was against it and Chase was inconsistent. So I didn't actually go through Griffin's case with any care. I need to be candid with the audience. And Andy did, but Andy, you're just explaining to me Oh, because there's a quasi-retroactivity issue here, that might require some you know, special procedures. I actually think that's a pretty good intuition on the part of a, of a genuine legalist, but has no application whatsoever to the present case. Now, in all fairness, elsewhere in his opinion... So he, the, my point is that he's confused, that he, see, that he sees the, that there are a multitude of issues. Uh, because elsewhere in the opinion he does, and I have to be fair here, he does make other statements that are more sweeping. But still, this speaks for itself, as you said last time, <laughs> reciprocator. So, um, so clearly there are, there are these distinctions, and to have this kind of sweeping rule, I think, is... is uh, is perhaps misplaced. Okay. But the biggest thing that I want to just come back to again and again and again is we heard chase, 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 Griffin, 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 not 
one word about Grant, about Canby, about William Tecumseh Sherman, all of whom supported, you know, fought in the war, are aware of what happens actually when you let these secessionists back into power. Grant fought in the war. William Tecumseh Sherman fought in the war. Canby fought in the war. Okay, they all supported Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was pending, and Chase didn't. And so if you want to talk about backdrop and what's most important, I would think, you know, the views of the sitting president of the United States are actually pretty freaking important as a backdrop. Now, he said, oh, the backdrop was Griffin's case, and I'm not in a position to completely contradict him because I haven't looked at all that legislative history, but I'm very dubious about that because, you know, he has not been straight, frankly, you know, on these other issues. And so he's lost some credibility with me as a as an historian, which truthfully he's not. And to repeat, if I'm going to pay attention to anyone, I, I'm going to pay attention most of all to the President of the United States who won the war um, and who supported Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and his name is Unconditional Surrender Grant. U.S. No, Grant, talking- Ulysses Simpson Grant. Yeah, I mean, a couple things. You're talking about liquidation, and the original, you know, liquidator is George Washington. You know, yes. so, you know, who's yes. certainly analogous so he's to the, Grant. He's here. the counterpart, just mm-hmm. so. And the American people pick Grant over Chase. They both want to be president. They both want to be president just as the 14th Amendment is being ratified. And the American people pick one over the other. And to his credit, Jonathan Mitchell says, well, there's no express preemption. Well, to me, that's pretty damn significant that there's no express preemption because ordinarily congressional laws are passed against a general presumption that they don't displace state law unless they sort of say so rather clearly or need to mean that um, given their pretty overwhelming logic. And also he says in that quote that we just heard in that clip, he says, well, if there was no Griffin's case and there was no congressional uh, enacting legislation, then he's got a problem. Well, it guess would be what? a much harder That's case. Precisely the situation before Griffin's case occurs, and what's going on during that time? There, Grant is executing, and the, he knows that. But Murray doesn't so say that, well, so, so any of that. that. So, but given that he just said that. You know, it sounds but like unless the, the opposing counsel calls him on that, mm-hmm. you know, no one is necessarily going to bring that to the court's attention because they're not the experts yet. They're trying to learn about the thing. And if they haven't, frankly, read the amicus briefs by the serious historians and legal historians, ourselves included, you know, they may not understand all this. That's why, you know, given that I think it was a pretty bad day for our team, I, I'm, I'm actually uh, giving, uh, attributing some responsibility to the, the losing general, you know, who uh, is Murray. Okay, so now we're going to, we're, we're still on self-executing. I'm skipping ahead a little bit in the transcript here with a quote from Justice Kavanaugh, who had actually a fair amount to say on these, on these issues. So this is something, you know, I'm going to play some quotes later that he said before he said what you're about to hear, but they're all related. It's just in the logical chain. This is probably the next one to listen to. On your point that it's been dormant for 155 years, I think the other side would say the reason for that is Chief Justice Chase's opinion in 1869 in Griffin's case to start. 
which says that Congress has the authority here, not the states. That's followed up by the Enforcement Act of 1870, in which Congress acts upon that understanding, which is followed, and there's no history contrary in that period, as Justice Thomas pointed out. There's no history contrary in all the years leading up to this of states exercising such authority. I think the reason it's been dormant is because there's been a settled understanding that Chief Justice Chase even if not right in every detail, was essentially right, and the branches of the government have acted under that settled understanding for 155 years. And Congress can change that. And Congress does have Section 2383, of course, the Insurrection Act uh, criminal statute. But Congress could change it, but they have not in the 155 years in relevant respects for what you want here today, at least. No, Justice Kavanaugh. The reason why it's been dormant is because by 1876, essentially all former Confederates had received amnesty. And we haven't seen anything like an insurrection since then. I think his answer was okay, but, you know, he got asked earlier a question by Justice Thomas. Can you show me examples of states doing this early on? And he talks about, well, you didn't have ballots in the same way. The stronger argument, if he had actually read our brief, the stronger argument is this is about disqualification of secessionists, oath-breaking secessionists. Where are they mostly clustered, especially the ones who are likely to get elected, in the Southland? And at the beginning, the Southland actually doesn't have states that are up and running. They're controlled by the federal government through a thing called Reconstruction. So, yeah, it's not states doing it, but it's federal officials running Virginia under Grant's command, named Canby, you know, and with and, and federal officials, you know, running Georgia and other places with orders from the, the general, and ultimately Ulysses Grant. And so they are doing it, and they're doing it without a congressional statute. Technically, you might see these aren't state officials there, but they're in loco parentis, as it were. They're, they're in the shoes of the state governments because that's what Reconstruction was all about. Okay, and so um, Justice Kavanaugh earlier had had some uh, comments on, uh, so, some further comments. Griffin's case is also uh, relevant to trying to figure out what the original um, public meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is. It's by the Chief Justice of the United States a year after the 14th Amendment. That seems to me highly probative of what the meaning or understanding of that language, otherwise elusive language, is. I do think it's probative, Justice Kavanaugh. We didn't rely too heavily on the point that you're making, partly because we have this other opinion from Justice Chase in the Jefferson Davis case. So that argument could potentially boomerang on us, which is why we didn't push it very hard in our briefing. But I think Your Honor is right. This is... Why don't you finish your sentence? It is is relevant and probative for sure. But I think there is other evidence too that might perhaps undercut the usefulness of trying to characterize Griffin's case as completely emblematic of the original understanding. Good for Jonathan Mitchell. He's candid with the court. John Roberts, who was the greatest oral advocate of this generation, was equally candid. But we didn't hear from Murray later on swooping in and saying, you want to talk about early understandings? Let's talk about Ulysses S. Grant, okay? Because he supported 
Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, with all due respect, Justice Kavanaugh, and Chase at the time opposed it. Surely, you, you know, if they have a different view, that's an important fact. And the American people elected Grant over Chase just as they're ratifying this, and surely that's important. You know, we, we, in our amicus brief, we served it up on a platter. And all Murray had to do, especially because Mitchell is actually making these concessions, is to drive that point home. And the words, Ulysses S. Grant, can be never appeared in his presentation. And unless yes, the justices have read our amicus brief, and I, frankly, I need to tell the audience, I saw very little evidence that anyone had, truthfully, then, you know, that point, it, the, the justices don't necessarily know all this. That's why we have oral argument to educate the justices, because they can't be experts on everything. So let me just ask you one more, uh, just to clarify something you've, you've said a few times. I haven't really asked you about it. And you just said it again, which is that Chase opposed the 14th Amendment, or at least Section 3. Yes. Um, and Grant was in favor of it. Okay. So now it passes. Well, Chase has a duty to enforce it. Why would his, you know, are you saying that he is, like, violating his oath and, you know, enforcing it in a, in a, in a you know, in a way that is contrary to its actual meaning? I mean, wh why do we not impute to him you know, uh, a certain legitimacy or honesty in how he enforces it. I don't understand why it would necessarily, I mean, for example, you like to talk about how um, ratifier, people that voted against the Constitution nevertheless get to, you know, to serve in federal office. James Monroe, you use a good example. Right. Um, and so why would we assume bad faith on the part of, of Chase where his actions don't indicate the meaning of, the, of Section 3? I'm not assuming bad faith. I'm saying I have to choose between the two. And there are general practices, I'll give you several, in law where the sponsors of the bill and the people who vote for it count more than the opponents when there's a judicial opinion and is authored by X and joined by Y and Z dissents. And now there's a later case X and Y, actually, if they disagree with Z, often have more credibility about what the, the case really means because one wrote it, you know, and the other supported it, and the third opposed it from the get-go. So that's actually how we do it generally. I'm not imputing bad faith to Justice Chase. I'm saying he never quite got it, and if it was Chase versus nothing, well, Chase, he's Chief Justice. But I have to choose Justice Kavanaugh between Chase and Grant, and I'm going to choose Grant for all of these reasons. And you kept saying, Your Honor, with all due respect, that there wasn't anything on the other side. And there was, and his name is Ulysses Simpson Grant, the reincarnation of George Washington, you know, the avatar, the precursor of Dwight Eisenhower. That's who we have. And Murray never says all of that. And we, I went through to such care in the amicus brief to set up Grant, you see, precisely because if I have to choose, the ace of spades beats the king of diamonds. You know, that's right. how it I works. Mean, Justice, so Justice Kavanaugh is saying, well, it's, um, you know, Chase plus the enacting legislation. One could, I guess you're saying it's, no, it's Grant plus Canby. 
So that's and you know. the enacting legislation doesn't have any express preemption. Let's look at it. Mm-hmm. And 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 if it and if it did suggest that you always needed the congressional statute, well, then Ulysses Grant is signing a law that basically is repudiating what he and his officials have already done. Well, maybe, but I'd like to see some evidence that that's what he thought that statute meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never said any of that because, you see, there was only, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here in response to this oral argument. That's why it's useful that we're slowing down the tape here. And I know that they're going to want to bank something out fast um, and unanimously. And I'm just making, you know, I'm a stumbling block to all of that when I'm telling them, stop, you know, or at least slow down and go through this because these I do not think the things you're saying, they might actually seem good in the moment. I doubt that they will age well. And I said that about Bush versus Gore the day it came down. And I thought we had finally buried, you know, Bush versus Gore in Moore versus Harper. And a lot of this is kind of Bush versus Gore kind of coming back, except it's not as polarized. It's not as partisan. But once again... Here's the the deep, deep connection. These justices think it's up to them. Mm -hmm. And if anywhere in the Constitution it's not up to them, it's actually presidential elections. Presidential elections are all about Congress on Judgment Day, January 6th, and before that, states, states, states. That's actually our presidential election system. And state, state, states ultimately are governed by state constitutions, state constitutions, state constitutions that are definitively construed by state supreme courts, more v. Harper, more, more, more. Okay. And, and, we'll get- and you will hear in later in the clips all sorts of just assumptions and assertions of the Supreme Court's supremacy overall, that they're the people who monitor the system. And the attorneys before the justices tend to, you know, bow and fawn and accept that, and I, from the outside, don't. Yeah, well, we'll certainly be hearing that. Let's let's uh, let's play the rest of these self-executing uh, clips here. You, you'll see that they're in part teeing up some some issues that will branch into other things that we hear about later. So here's uh, Justice Kagan back again. What is the sum total of ways that that enforcement can happen? So the answer to that question is going to depend on what Your Honor thinks of Griffin's case. So if this court were to affirm the rationale of Griffin's case, then the only way Section 3 could be enforced is through congressional legislation that creates a remedy. So Congress could reinstate the quo warranto provisions that they initially had in the 1870s. Is that your position? Yes, because we believe Griffin's case is correctly decided and should be and, followed. And how does that fit with a lot of the, 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 the answers to the questions that we've been given? You said, well, Congress has to have the ability by a two-thirds vote to lift the disqualification. Right. Um, but so, too, I, w- I would think that that uh, provision would, s- would, would be in some tension with what you just said. Th- there is because some, yeah. if, if Congress has the ability to lift the vote by a two-thirds majority, then surely it can't be right that one House of Congress can do the exact same thing by a simple majority. Yeah, there certainly is some tension, Justice Kagan, and some commentators have pointed this out. Professor Bode and Professor Paulson criticized Griffin's Then I must very be sharply. right. Well... <laughs> Okay, couldn't couldn't resist the shout out to Bowden Paulson there. 
I candidly missed that in the moment. I heard the shout out, but I didn't quite understand her point. I may have been distracted for a moment. That was a good point. That was a really, really good point, Justice Kagan. And and I don't know whether she has read Bowdoin Paulson, but Mitchell has. Mitchell is prepared. Mitchell knows his stuff. And there was a candor there when, you know, when he gave that shout out. Later on, actually, Andy, there's going to be a, a very subtle shout out to me, although not by, by name, by Mitchell. But Justice Kagan, whether you've read Bowdoin Paulson or not, that's a good structural point that you just made. I totally Could you agree elaborate with it on and it? admire you. Could you explain the point? Yeah. Her point is there's a mechanism to basically dispense with enforcement of Section 3, and the mechanism is congressional amnesty, and that requires two-thirds of each house. But if you say it means nothing at all until Congress passes a statute, well, then actually a simple majority of one house, 50% plus one, can block a law from being passed and sending two-thirds of each to basically thwart Section 3. Just by mere inaction, you can thwart it, and that requires not two-thirds of both, but you know, one half plus one of either. Wow, that's a nice structural point. It's very similar in its logic to what I said earlier about Powell versus McCormick, about the interrelationship between exclusion and expulsion. If you can exclude someone for any reason at all, then you never need to have muster two-thirds to expel. You just exclude by a simple majority. It's an, it's an elegant point, and she saw it, and good for her, and it's not a surprise that my friends Bowdoin Paulson saw it first. Truthfully, you know, I had forgotten that Bowdoin Paulson made that point, but it's a great one. Yeah, here's a, here's a comment from, a, from an interested observer. I don't think it makes sense to say that this legislation sunset or expiration or even repeal passed by majority vote serves to make the 14th Amendment non-executing. That would be tantamount to amnesty, which requires not a majority vote, but a two-thirds vote of Congress. Yeah. I don't think yeah. we need to read that, because I think we just said it and repeated it. Well, you know who it, said it, that? But... No. Me. Okay. I said that in an email to you before the oral argument. Okay. Well, I don't read all your emails, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, then you have to put it in. <laughs> Okay, so, so for our last clip on the self-executing topic, um, here's Justice Kavanaugh again. Justice Kavanaugh? i just uh, make sure I understand how you're using Griffin's case again. Um, Section 3 refers to insurrection and raises questions about who decides what processes are to be used. That's ratified in 1868. The next year, Chief Justice Chase opines that states do not have the authority uh, that only Congress has the authority to enforce that. Uh, that could be evidence, as you say, of the original public meaning, at least some evidence. Mm -hmm. It's a precedent, although not binding. But your point then is it's reinforced because Congress itself relies on that precedent in the Enforcement Act of 1870 and forms the backdrop uh, against which Congress does legislate. And then, as Justice Alito says, the historical practice for 155 years has been that that's the way it's gone. There hasn't, there haven't been state attempts to enforce disqualification under Section Three against federal officers in the years since. So whether right. that's a Federalist Thirty-Seven liquidation argument, it all reinforces uh, 
what happened back in 1868, 1869, and 1870. All right. You want to add to that, alter that? No, I think that's exactly right. And the last part you mentioned, Your Honor, is crucial to our argument, that Congress relied on Griffin's case. It provided the backdrop against which they legislated, which is why we should read these extant enforcement mechanisms, and right now the only one left is the Federal Insurrection Statute, 2383, as exclusive of state court remedies. It's it's a form of implied preemption, almost sea clamors implicit preemption of other remedies, because Congress made these decisions in explicit reliance on Griffin's case. And if we agree with you on Griffin's case and what you've elaborated on there, that's the end of the case, right? Okay, so that's summing up, I think. To repeat... Implied preemption is strongly disfavored, and it was not the backdrop. My position is evolving as I'm hearing this, you know, for the second time and being able to absorb it, because why would Ulysses S. Grant, mouse-like, saying nothing, sign a law that actually condemns what his own administration has done before that statute? That makes no sense to me, absent lots of evidence. Okay, But if you only know, Justice Kavanaugh, I'm speaking to you directly because I actually do know you and you know me and you know I'm a straight shooter and you know I'm not always just on one side of the spectrum and I'm trying to tell you this scholar to justice. No, no, no. There was just Chase. There was Grant. And Murray didn't tell you that because maybe Murray doesn't know his stuff. But I'm telling you that Grant is the backdrop of all of this. And why would he sign into law a bill that just impliedly is repudiating and condemning what he did without a statute? Doesn't make sense to me. Now I'm admitting to the audience, I have not studied the enactment of that statute to the same extent I've studied other periods, because this is after the ratification of the 14th Amendment. But No, this doesn't smell right to me at all, Justice Kavanaugh. I know you're trying to put it together in a certain way, but I'm not buying it. You know, um, maybe it's true that you didn't study these things, that particular element. But one thing you did study was Grant's memoirs that are written later. And if indeed he's, you know, renouncing his own actions, you sure don't read it in the memoirs when when he's can be, can be, can be. And, you know, and there's nothing... To, to suggest that. Um, so, you know, that, that I would say is further evidence. And this is why, Andy, look, the audience needs to be, we've tried to be straight with the audience. You know, we, our side took a beating at oral argument and we're not trying to spin. And it's probably going to go in a certain way, but they've sped this thing up very fast and we're slowing it down and actually giving you now our analysis of what the arguments are from the justices and the attorneys. And we're doing so in part, I got to be blunt, because Murray didn't do his job the way I would have liked to see the job done. So there's a lot more to talk about. We, um, this you know, basically entire episode has been on self-executing. But I think that the if you listen to Justice Kavanaugh, I mean, he just wrote his opinion for you, I think, yes. in, that, in that last clip. He did. You know, and, and so uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see, to see that, uh, that kind of language. But it will there. not, it, it might even write, but it won't, uh, but it won't age well, mm. okay? Because um, it's out there and we scholars actually are going to have at it. That's what we do as scholars. So 
I am aware that the train is leaving the station, and I'm aware that the Supreme Court has to decide things quickly given election timing. We've seen this before. It was Bush versus Gore, and the justices said all sorts of things that were wrong. They've had to walk some of those back. And I'm trying, as a genuine friend of the court, to urge them not to make the same mistake. So here's what I'm asking. I'm asking the justices and their clerks to listen carefully to what we said, because Jonathan Mitchell added a whole bunch of things in his reply brief. You see, that's actually what Justice Kagan said. Oh, now you're relying on an argument in your reply brief. And that hasn't even been allowed under the court rules to invite another set of briefs in response. And then he said all sorts of things like, well, it's the backdrop. What's your evidence for that? You show me, please. All the people who are talking about Griffin's case in the legislative history of those statutes. Please show me that, uh, Jonathan Mitchell, because I haven't heard it. And why would Grant go for all of that? Because he had a contrary position, and he's the president who signs it. makes no sense whatsoever to me, the more and more I think about it. And then you say, oh, it's all implied. Okay, because the statute doesn't say anything about ousting state law. So it's all this claimed background understanding for which there's no evidence and all implication for which there's no evidence. So Justice Kavanaugh in particular and all the justices in general, I'm urging you to actually be very careful here because you, I think you're trying to put together a narrative that doesn't work. Now, we've only done half of the oral argument, Andy, and we're going to need to do another episode on the rest of, of the issues because I think there were mistakes there too. Because this is a matter of particular urgency, it's not just a, for our audience, but for the court, because we are friends of the court in this podcast, as well as in our briefs, we're going to get this episode up early, and we're going to try to get that one up as fast as humanly possible. And we hope, actually, we've said enough already today that if there's anyone out there who's listening and in a position to make a difference, any clerk or justice, we hope we've actually given you evidence that you didn't hear the whole story at oral argument. And, and you need to, to get this one right. This one's important. So we're going to get this episode up early. We're going to tape the next episode quickly. We're going to get that one up relatively early as well, certainly way earlier than it would be, which would be a week from Wednesday. That's It's going to be way before that. So, you know, if you, clerk or justice, pay us the respect of, of listening, we'll pay you the respect of staying up all night and getting it ready. We, we know the train is moving. We're trying to pull an emergency cord uh, here because we, we really see a possible impending train wreck. Now, just one special word to my colleague and truly dear friend, Sam Moyne. Sam, I have not forgotten our promise to talk about Justice Jackson in particular and the officer stuff and, and liberal originalism. You know, there's so much left to talk about. Our audience is now hearing the backstory of all of these references. And I missed a lot of that. And I missed a lot of that when it first was happening. But I'm slowing it down as we have done today, I hope, is a service to the larger community.
Well, I have to say, Akil, that that the listening to the oral argument was was excruciating, but uh, but actually analyzing it today was fun, and there'll be more it, of it. It actually was. I'm feeling a little bit better, actually, just getting to do what it is that we do. And even though I disagree with Jonathan Mitchell, I think he's an extremely skilled oral advocate with a very good rapport with the justices and a certain level of candor. But his arguments actually don't fit together. They're, they're, they're not correct. Yeah, well, less candor and more can be. So, okay, we'll be back with more. <laughs> 